All right, tonight we are, the first Sunday of Advent is rapidly ending, and so we're going to use this uh, hour tonight, do a little bit more work on things related to the first Sunday of Advent, and I don't know if you remember the first hour this morning, but I gave you four basic principles from Advent, that comes from Advent, they're kind of themes, principles, concepts, and those four principles were, number one, Hope, number two, preparation, number three, anticipation, and number four, joy. Those were the four basic principles that are, I think, basic themes, basic principles, I'm referring to them as principles, that we can find a lot of times in the readings and the different things related to Advent, and usually different themes that emerge in different ways when dealing, leading up to uh, uh, Christmas, those types of things. So this morning we were going to spend some time on those, but because we spent so much time with the history, we didn't really get an opportunity to do that. Now in the second hour, we spent our time in Isaiah 63 and 64. And Isaiah 63 and 64, we may see that there, there seems to be at least a little bit of hope in there, right? There's a little bit of despair, but there's a little bit of hope. There's a little bit of anticipation. And you can see maybe... Uh, maybe a little bit of preparation, a li- maybe a little bit, maybe not so much there. We definitely see the preparation in the gospel reading, which is Mark chapter 13, which is telling you to prepare by what? Taking heed, watching, don't be sleeping. So we get the theme. So those themes will emerge in different ways. Maybe sometimes we'll have to look for them, maybe we'll not. But I thought we would just take each theme and we would just kind of, now we're going to utilize a source, but then of course you know how we, when we utilize a source, what do we do? Well, we take the source and we kind of like, here's what they say. What do we think, right? Because we are not bound by the source, right? And so then we may deviate far from it. And then, of course, I'll be asking you maybe to look up things and and, and ask you about different verses. So this is going to be very much participation. So hopefully you will do that, all right? So I'm going to be utilizing uh, the Handbook of Bible Application. I've had this book forever. Um, And so I thought, well... I haven't used it a lot. Let's put it to good use tonight. So sounds good. All right. Now, for this, they definitely have an entry for hope. They definitely have an entry for preparation. They do not have an uh, entry for anticipation. We're going to use a different word because I think uh, I, I think it will still relate. You may disagree, but we'll see. And they definitely have an entry for joy. So three of them will use the book. One will use the book, but we're going to use a different word. And hopefully that will work. Because when I think of anticipation, if you look up, look up synonyms, sometimes anticipation has the word hope connected to it. So we're going to kind of separate it a little bit because I think there's another concept that fits there. And you can tell me if, if you agree or disagree when we get there. So let's start with the idea of hope. First thing let's do, look up, if you're using Blue Letter Bible app or whatever app, look up the word hope and tell me the first place it, it shows up in the Bible. The first time the word hope is mentioned in the Bible. The very first time. We have, we have Proverbs 10, 28. Is that, you said that's the first time? Okay, all right. Well, oh, we have Ruth. Okay, Ruth what? 112, all right. So the first use 
is Ruth 1.12. Let's just take a look at it. We're already looking at it because y'all you know, looked it up. But here, Ruth 1.12, here we go. And what do we find? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have an husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight and should also bear sons. Now, if you look up the word hope there in the Hebrew, what is it? What is the Hebrew word for hope there? Even if you, what does it mean if you don't want to try to say the word? I'm not looking at it currently. Oh, so expectation, say an expectation, something you're holding on to. Okay. And how many times is that Hebrew word used? About 33, 34 times, okay? All right, but so it gives us a sense of expectancy, all right? Now, that's the first time hope shows up in the Bible. What's the last time it shows up in the Bible? We're going to do that first and last concept that we've talked about before. 1 John 3, 3. 1 John 3, 3. 1 John 3, 3. And what do we read here? And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So here we have the first one, hope, at least the Hebrew word, the idea of hope was an expectancy, kind of holding on for something, looking for something. Hey, should I hope? For, should I have this kind of hope? Is it a good hope to have? Is it a foolish hope, right? So it can be used in a very general way. Here, hope is used, but it should actually produce something. What is the Greek word for hope? Even if you can't pronounce it, what is, what is the meaning of it? Okay, expectation or confidence. And it can be used in kind of a positive or negative way, right? Once again, you could have hope in something that would be what? Foolish. It could be a false hope, right? It could be a false hope. You have a false expe- uh, expectancy. But there, it also can have a, it's almost a, it can also be used in a certain way. Like, oh, it's not like I hope. It's like I hope because I know. So there's a couple of ways of using it. We have a basic idea now, let's see how the Life Application Handbook is going to approach this. They're going to approach this not so much in defining it. They do offer a couple of words, all right? Here are three words they use to kind of try to define hope. They give three words, which will be interesting because at least one of these words shows up here in the basic principles of Advent, all right? So they have hope and then in parentheses, three words. You ready? Anticipation. Confidence, and what do you think the third one is? Faith, there we go, faith. So they are connecting hope to anticipating something, almost in a positive way, right? Confidence in something, and then having faith, believing, right, believing. So they're looking at it in a much more way, a certain way for something good, for something positive. Right? Well, when we take hope and bring it to the world of Advent, well, then we have a certainty, we have a hope, because on one hand, we're looking back to what Christ did, so we have a complete confidence 
and faith in what he did for us because the first coming is already over. And then that should give us a confidence and anticipation and faith for the second coming. So that's exactly how Advent works in looking at those uh, two situations, all right? Now, this is the first question they're going to present. So and what they do is they kind of present a question and then they try to give a scriptural answer. Does that make sense? In relation to the topic or to the subject. So here's what they here's the question. What are the sources of a believer's hope? What are the sources of a believer's hope? If we're going to have hope, what is the source of that hope? Now, we could probably start throwing out our answers. Let's see what they do, and we'll do a little bit of work on this. Everybody ready for the first place they send us? Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26. I know, that was kind of a, I wasn't expecting that. Were you? I was not expecting Leviticus, all right? So they want us to look at a large section here. They want us to look really at 46 verses. There's no way we're going to sit here and read 46. We're going to kind of skim this and then see if we can kind of get a basic idea of what's going on. Leviticus chapter 26. And let's see if we can get a basic idea of what's happening, all right? So if you start looking at Leviticus 26, what do we have happening in verse 1, 2, 3, at least maybe verses 1 through 3? Commands, right? You shall make no idols. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then now this is where it could get interesting, right? Now, now we got to be really careful here because... We, we can walk ourselves into kind of a weird understanding of hope, right? Because hope is an expectancy, faith, a confidence. Tip, and it's almost typically looked at as something good, right? Okay? Well, they give us three commands, and what do they immediately do after those three commands? Or those three scripture, three passages talking about commands? Then we see, then... Then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the tree of the field shall yield their fruit, and your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. All right, well, whoa, whoa, okay, wait. That's, that could lead us into, so, because we could, uh, we could come back with an alternative kind of question or, or at least a different way of answering this, right? What is the source of our hope, if we just take that first part, what would we say? Our obedience is the source of our hope. We have hope in God's blessing if we are obedient. Well, that could, that could put us in, because then what do we have? Then we're right back to a cycle, right? Well, you have to pretend you have hope, because then what you have to do is focus on your behavior only from an external standpoint, and then you have to probably kind of create a situation where you can feel like you are obedient. But if you're even remotely honest with yourself, you'd be like, oh boy, we're in trouble. So is that why they took us here? Is that why they took us here? That's not the answer they're going to give. So we obviously have to keep reading. Okay, what's what's next? What starts in verse 6? Does he continue the kind of the same idea? I will give peace in the land. Uh, Verse 7, and you shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. And 500 of you shall chase 100 and 100 of you shall put 10,000 to flight and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. 
Now, immediately again, let's just make sure we remember this from a historical perspective. God said he would do all of this for them if, and we know over and over, they don't, okay? So they don't even meet the external requirements, much less the internal requirements, okay? So, okay, what happens next? For I will have respect unto you. I will make you fruitful and multiply you and establish my covenant with you. And you shall eat, uh, 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 and, and you shall eat old store and bring forth the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you and my, sh- my soul shall not abhor you. I mean, this is a lot. All these things he's going to do, but it's all what? It's all conditional, 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 conditional. But what happens in verse 14? But if you will not hearken unto me and will not do all these commandments, and if you shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments so that you will not do all my commandments, but yet you break my covenant, I will also do this unto you. Now this all starts some very negative things, does it not? I will even appoint over you terror, consumption and the burning uh, ague that shall consume the eyes and shall cause sorrow of heart and you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it and I will set my face against you and you shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you and you shall flee when none pursueth you. And if you will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins." I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass and your strength shall be spent in vain for the land shall not yield her increase. Neither shall the trees of the land yield their fruits. And if you walk and if ye walk contrary unto me and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. That all sounds horrible. All right, so at this point, if we're going to use this for hope, what, what, we're kind of left that hope is a conditional thing, right? Don't have hope unless you're what? Or the source of your hope is what your obedience. So the level of hope you can have is based on what you do or don't do. That's a, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going with this. Are you? Are you? Are you? I, I've got a problem with this. Like, let's see where this is going to continue, right? Uh, verse 22, I will send wild beasts among you, right? Verse 23, and if you will not be reformed by me, by these things, but I will walk, uh, but will walk contrary unto me. Then I will also walk contrary unto you, and will punish you yet seven times for your sins. I, I'm not, I'm not getting a very good feeling here. Are you? I'm not getting any good feeling here. Right? Uh, he's going to bring a sword. Verse twenty six, and I have, uh, and when I have broken the staff of of your bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven. They shall deliver your bread again. By weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. You will walk not for all, uh, the, and if you will not for all this, hearken unto me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary unto you. And again, it's all this. I'm going to chastise you, punish you seven times, seven times more, seven times more. That's all, that's all negative, right? Uh, what else is going to happen in verse 29? You shall eat the flesh of your sons and and the flesh of your daughters shall you eat. I will destroy your high places, cut down your images, cast your carcasses upon the carcass of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. Now, please note, all of this warning is being given in Leviticus, right? The same kind of warning is going to be given in Deuteronomy, 
right? And yet, they're literally going to do every single thing that they're not supposed to do over and over and over. He's going to make their cities waste, their land desolate in verse 32. Verse 33, I'm going to scatter you among the heathen. Uh, then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths as long as it lieth desolate and you be in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. Hey, the land, if, you, if you're not going to follow my Sabbath, I'm going to make sure the land follows the Sabbath by doing what? Getting rid of you. Okay, getting rid of you. All right, um, this doesn't sound good, does it? Right? Um, let's see, we can, uh, verse 37, you shall fall one on another. Verse 38, you shall perish among the heathen. Verse 39, and they that are left of you shall pine away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands. Also in the iniquities of their father shall they pine away with them. If they shall confess, if they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespasses, which they trespass against me, this also uh, they have walked contrary unto me and that I have walked contrary unto them. I think you're getting the idea. But then it says, verse 42 Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham. I remember and I will remember the land. Now look at verse 43. What does it say in verse 43? Okay. The land also shall be left of them, shall enjoy her Sabbaths while she lies desolate without them. They shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity because even because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Now look at verse 44. What does verse 44 begins with? And yet, for all that, and yet for all that, how's the NIV translate it? In spite of this, this, or in spite of all of that, is something positive about to be said? When they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. Everybody see that? I will not cast them away. You may want to circle that about 75 times and uh, draw arrows towards it and exclamation points because what's what's the big argument in, in, in Christianity when it comes to eschatology? They're done with Israel. What does he just say? I will not cast them away, even if they're where? even in their lands of their enemies. In spite of all of that, I will not cast them away. Now this begins to change our concept of hope, does it not? This begins to really change our concept of hope, or it should, at least put it this way, at least the Life Application Handbook thinks you should. They think when you get to verse 44, you should be like, oh, because they think now this is where we find our, the real source of our hope. What does the verse go on to say? Neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. The point is, even if they do all of this, even if they mess up, what is God going to do? Everyone read that phrase right at the beginning because I told you to circle it about 37 times. 
I will not reject them. How does the King James? I will not cast them away. Yet, in spite of all of this, I will not cast them away. Yet, I will not. I, whenever you get into a debate about eschatology, you may want to just remember that phrase. Yet, I will not cast them away. Now, therefore, based off this verse, what do you think is the source of our hope? God's faithfulness. The source of our hope is based on God's faithfulness, not based on our obedience. Or curse, right? Even in spite of all of that, at least for Israel, he's not going to reject them. They still may get that chastisement, but he's not going to reject them. He's not going to cast them away. Remember, that's the, whole ar- that's the whole argument. Even if Israel does all of that, which we know they do, right? Do they not experience that chastisement? They do. Yet he will not cast them away. There, I, ca- I cannot say this enough. The source of a believer's hope. You may want to write this down. If, you don't, if we don't get anything else tonight, we need to get this down. The source of our hope is not our obedience holiness or godliness, but God's faithfulness. If my hope is dependent on anything I do, I have no hope. Because even if I was to perform it correctly externally, internally, what would, what would I end up with? Internally, I would end up, I would end up condemned, even if I was to, to perform it externally. Has everybody got that? So, uh, the source of our hope is not based on our righteousness, our holiness, our performance, our obedience. It is based off God's faithfulness. Now, they got a paragraph here about this. But before I look at the paragraph, I want you to stop right here. I want you to think about it. Let's see who can find it first. Someone find me a verse in the Bible that speaks of God being faithful even if we're not. Go. Yeah, go. I'll look for it. See See if y'all can find it. Is there a verse in the Bible that speaks of God being faithful even if we're not? Is there? If you don't know, if you don't know where that one is, find something on God's faithfulness. But at least find one. If, just see if you can find something about God being faithful even if we're not. All right, those listening online, feel free to look it up. Need to play Jeopardy music. What do we have? Do we have anything? Nothing? Okay, all right, all right, okay, okay. Okay, I was getting ready, I was going to see, it shouldn't take like that, that long because I was getting ready to do a Google search just to see how long it would take to find. Okay, what verse? Second Timothy 2.13. All right, Second Timothy 2.13, what do we read? 
If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Everybody see that? He cannot deny himself. Even if Israel was unfaithful, God was going to remain faithful because he cannot deny himself. And he connected himself with them because he made a covenant. Well, he made a covenant basically with them, but he based it on himself, remember? Right? So that's a key verse, right? Look, that Leviticus verse, I know y'all may not understand the significance of it, but if you know anyone who's going to argue for a, a... a replacement of Israel, they got to do something with Leviticus because God, don't tell me God is talking about the church in Leviticus 26. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life, okay? That's clearly Israel. Clearly. And he's like, even if they do all of this, I'm not going to cast them away because God remains faithful, right? So so there's, there's one verse. Find, just find another verse. Just look for anything dealing with the, uh, the God, God's faithfulness. Just any verse. It can be anything that you, you like. Just look anywhere about God being faithful or faithfulness. God is faithful, faithfulness. God being faithful. Just anything. There's, there's got to be plenty of verses about God is faithful, faithfulness. I would think. If there's none, just let me know that there's zero in the Bible on the subject. Okay, because I, I would like, I would like to know this if, it, if that's the case. Anybody got one that you think is good? This is. Very, Oh, 1 Peter 4, 9, what does it say? Okay, all right. Faithful creator, all right. Anything else? Anything? Anything in the Psalms about God being faithful? All right, what verse is that? 1 Thessalonians 5.24. 1 Thessalonians 5.24. I think that was one of the ones I was thinking. Faithful is he that called you who also will do it. Who's going to do it? God. Who's the one who called you? God. God is faithful. All right. Anybody got another one? God is faithful. He is faithful. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful. Now, I want you, I, listen, I think the entire Advent Christmas story, it, it, the principle is hope. But let, let me make this very clear, okay? You can stop looking now. I want to make sure everybody's got this, okay? The source of our faithfulness is not our obedience, It's not our godliness. It's not our holiness. It's not us passing MacArthur's test. Our hope is God's faithfulness. It is because God is faithful even when we are not. 
And that's the whole story of Israel. In Leviticus 26, what verse was that? 44. In spite of all of this, I am not going to cast them away, right? And then, when, just think about it. When, you, when you're reading the Old Testament, come on, just be honest. By the time you're done, even with, probably by the time you're done with 1st, 2nd Samuel Chronicles, I mean, but by, you, it doesn't take you long to get into the Old Testament. And if you're just remotely honest with yourself, you're like, what is wrong with these people? These people are trash, right? I mean, you're like, these people are the worst, right? God has done this for them and this. Did God remain faithful over and 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 over? No matter how much they complain, no matter how much they sin, God remained faithful, God remained faithful. He would send prophets, faithful, faithful. Even when he was chastising them, he remained faithful because he did not allow them to be totally destroyed. He brought them out of captivity. And then you're, by the time you get to the Old Testament, you're kind of like, okay, can we just be done with Israel? Can we just be done with Israel? All right. And then next thing you know, we turn to Matthew and the Messiah has arrived and he has come to save his people from their sins. And he's going to sit upon the throne of David, right? He is going to be fair. Do they deserve a king to sit on the throne of David? No, that's, that's why I, the reformed people who always argue uh, wanting Israel to be replaced, I don't understand that. Like that destroys your whole theology. You're like, God is sovereign and God is faithful. But, he, but he's like, I'm sorry, Israel, you're done. You're done. You're just done. You're done. Well, that makes no sense. Because <laughs> if God is done with Israel, He should have been done with the church about, I don't know, 1,500 years ago. Right? He should have been done with me a long time ago. And y'all can look at me that way, but he probably should have been done with you as well. Right? So I cannot stress this enough. What is the source of a believer's hope? God's faithfulness. What is it not based off of? Your anything you do. My hope is not in what I, my hope is that what Christ has done, all right? His faithfulness. Here's what they write in this paragraph. Uh, A Christian's hope is based on God's faithfulness. These verses, speaking of Leviticus, show that God meant what he said. uh, Okay, let me read these verses, this again. These verses show what God meant when he said he is slow to anger in Exodus 34, 6. I would say he's very slow to anger because he should have wiped Israel off the face of the earth about 755,000 times. But forget Israel, all of humanity. Correct? Even if the Israelites chose to disobey and were scattered among their enemies, God would still give them the opportunity to repent and return to him. His purpose was not to destroy them, but to help them grow. Our day-to-day experiences and hardships are sometimes overwhelming unless we can see that God's purpose is to bring about continual growth in us. We may despair. The hope we need is well expressed. Now, this is where I have a problem here because they're going to commit a major hermeneutical error. They're saying the hope that we need is found in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 12. No, 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 no. No. Can you know what exactly what they see? They, they go to Leviticus and it's all about whom? Israel. And then somehow they've now hijacked this and made it about us. I get so sick and tired of the Christian world doing that. Everyone knows Jeremiah 29, right? 11 through 12. For I know 
The plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Listen, that is about, that is a fulfillment of the Leviticus passage. In spite of all of this, God tells those in Babylonian captivity, I know the plans I have for you to bless you because God's going to remain faithful to them. Now, we can take that concept and God will remain faithful to us even if we find ourselves in Babylonian captivity with our sin, which we may find ourselves there plenty of times. God is still faithful. That's, that's the point of that. Um, it says, uh, um, well, they go on and quote a little bit more. Retaining hope while we suffer shows we understand God's merciful ways of relating to his people. No, retaining hope, I mean, maybe it's very clear. Retaining hope is clinging to God's faithfulness, not to look, how can I say this? Retaining hope is by clinging to God's faithfulness, not looking for your circumstances to change. If you look for your circumstances to change, you'll lose hope. You have to have, it's hard to see God being faithful when your circumstances seem to, remember Isaiah this morning? Where's God? Circumstances will make you lose hope. You retain hope by remaining God is faithful even though it it doesn't appear that he's faithful. Yeah, yeah, they they were in exile. Remember that was the historical context? Yeah, they were in exile. So, So let's go through, what's the source of our hope? God's faithfulness, not us. Just make sure you have that. It's not based on anything you do. Now, Christians will come along and try to take that hope from you, right? Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, wait, here's the MacArthur test. All right, Bobby, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do that. You don't have any hope, you're going to hell. You know what? Those people need to just go away and stop talking because that's a destruction of Christianity and every, they just need to go join a Catholic church. Stop claiming to me that you are not Catholic. That is pure Catholic, because Catholicism will say, wait a minute, Bobby, you are no longer in a state of grace. You're going to hell. You don't even make it to purgatory. At least Catholics are honest. But these Protestants who claim that they're not Catholic, when all they do is spout their Catholicism, I'm sick and tired of it. That destroys your hope. And that makes your hope based on what? What you do. That is, that is not Christianity. My hope is on what? God did, God does his faithfulness. And you know why he will be faithful to me? Because he cannot deny himself. And in Christ, no, if I'm in Christ, he can't deny Christ. One God, three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal. If I'm in Christ, he can't deny me because I'm in Christ. Not based on what I do. And I know the minute I say that, people are like, but, 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 are you saying that you can do this and you can do this? And he's, I'm saying that obviously you can be a king, have a thousand women commit adultery on a regular, regular basis and still be able to write scripture. Okay, I didn't come up with that concept. It, 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 Solomon, okay, y'all looking at me like, yeah, I know I do what I'm talking about. Okay, right, so, right, clearly, because God is faithful. Faithful. I know, I know people don't like that because they feel like, ooh, ooh. Now, now, hopefully, because we can have such hope, we would be motivated to try to pursue righteousness. But we, we may not because we don't always, all right? So I just want to make sure we got that. How, 
Our, the basis of our hope is God's faithfulness. And let me make this clear. The way we retain that hope, even though they, they kind of hit at this, we retain that hope by doing what? Looking to God, not to circumstances. We, we retain hope by clinging to his faithfulness. That has nothing to do with our circumstances. We, we always connect hope to God changing our circumstance. That is a ridiculous thing to do, right? If you're like, oh, I'm, because that's what people always tell you to do, right? You get some, you know, all of a sudden you get some horrible news and some Christian will come to you and pat you on the back going, believe in God, trust in God. All things work to good. He's going to make this, he's going to fix it. Just shut up. Okay. You don't know if he's going to fix it. So stop telling people that, right? I can't stand when Christians do that. Don't say that to anybody. You don't know. Because the next phone call may be, hey, I thought you said God was going to fix that because my mom just died. But people did that to me when my mother was in the hospital. Oh, God's going to fix it. God, just stop it. But that's the worst thing to tell people. God is faithful even if my mom dies. Now, that's hard for me to process. I will admit that. Now, you don't go go telling someone God is faithful. That's something you have to, there's a time to speak and there's a time when Christians should just never speak, ever. Typically, Christians should never speak, ever. Okay, that's probably the best bet. Because because usually we say something really foolish. We think we're trying to help, but we really just, it's like taking a knife and stabbing it into someone, right? Just stop talking because it's a horrible thing to do, right? It's a horrible thing to do. But we, the only way, and in a sense, Job still believed God was faithful. Yeah, they said, even, even if we're not delivered, he's able to save us. Yeah, yeah. Same, and, even, uh, and just think, Job was the same way. He still believed that God was faithful. Even though he was like, I wish I was never born, and where are you, and what's going on? And that, that's that, that, remember we talked about it this morning. That's that, that two realities we walk in. And Isaiah, we saw that. The people were like, God, you did this. Where are you? And at the same time, they're like, but you're our father. You are our redeemer. And you're like, how? It almost looks like schizophrenic. That's the, that's the way it is for a Christian. It is schizophrenic. We don't deny our reality. We don't deny our reality. We express that pain. We embrace that pain. We do not have to lie. We don't have to pretend. At the same time, we yet remain, God is faithful. Because that's who he is. All right, everybody got that? All right, go to Mark chapter one. I was all worried. I was all worried tonight that we were going to go through these so fast and that, you know, we would, y'all would be really upset that it was going to be a quick sermon. It's now uh, 6.41 and we're not going to finish the first one, okay? So, uh, that's because y'all have no hope. Y'all have no hope, okay? Y'all have no hope. No, no expectancy. You are negative, jaded, rude people who think negative things about me. Okay, that's why. All right. All right, right. Mark chapter 5, all right. Mark chapter 5. What happens in this one? I'm in Matthew, so it makes absolutely zero sense. Uh, 
because Matthew chapter 5 is the Beatitudes, right? Mark chapter 5. All right, we have a long story here. They want us to read like entire chapters almost, all right? But here we go. All right, uh, Mark chapter 5, we'll start in verse 21. And when Jesus passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. Behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue. Who shows up? Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly saying, my little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hand on her that she may be healed and she shall live. And Jesus went with him and much people followed, uh, followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, which had issue of blood 12 years, had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing uh, better, but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind him, touched his garment, for she said, if I may touch, but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked around about to see her uh, that, that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him, Uh, all the truth, and he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith had made thee whole. Go in peace, and be whole of thy plague. While he yet spake, there came from from the ruler of the synagogue's house, certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Now stop right here. Now, obviously the text doesn't tell us a lot, right? But you can kind of feel like, Hey, he told her, he told Jesus that she was in bad shape, it sounds like, right? And he starts going there, and next thing you know, he's doing what? He's having this discussion with this woman, right? So in one sense, that would kind of look like, what are you doing? Like, could you not maybe expedite? Could you not say, hey, everyone get away from me? I got to go. Or, I mean, you know, he's God. He actually doesn't even have to go to the house, does he? Now, obviously not. So the whole thing is kind of just an interesting narrative, right? Because, wait, because you're reading it, you're kind of like, hey, the other person, you forgot the other person, you forgot Jarius. What? Why are you talking to this woman? You forgot, go get to his house. And then all of a sudden, the story almost dramatically, you can almost see like the music would change, kind of get very dark and all of like, hey, it's over. Don't even bother. She's dead. Right? Is that how it kind of reads, or, 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 or do y'all believe it reads differently? Okay, what verse was that? 35, all right. And as soon as Jesus heard, verse 36, and as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. Okay, all right, ignoring what they said, all right. Yeah, it says, uh, another translation says, but Jesus ignored their comments and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just trust me. Just trust me. 
or believe in me. Now, what happens? What happens when he gets to the house? Y'all can look ahead. Sleep, and he does what? Tell her to get up. What's her name? Talitha, right? And he call, and I think he calls her by name, right? And as she gets up, and she's healed, right? Now, what, what we focus on, of course, is in all of these cases, we look at the healing, the healing, the healing, and then in our minds, we say, okay, if I trust in Jesus, then everything's going to be fixed. I know that's how the Christian mind works. I wish it was the case. But we know it's not always the case, right? Job obviously trusted and believed and you know he may have got a new family but his original kids died didn't get them back everybody's like well he got a new family so what is he so upset about okay that's so weird how christians you know sanctity of life well job should have just gotten over it he got a new i'm like whatever okay that's just so messed up john the baptist didn't get anything he didn't even get a visit right so i'm saying that when we trust We've got to be very careful. Don't always connect trust with a positive outcome. Does that make sense? Well, I know we've kind of already covered this. I'm just going to, they're, they're, going to, they're not really going in that direction, but I want to make sure that we don't make that mistake because at least early on in my Christian life, that's how I thought. I'm like, okay, I, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be doing drugs. I'm not going to try to do this. I'm not going to try to do this. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to study my Bible. I'm now a Christian. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to go to school and tell everyone I'm a Christian. I'm going to try to live out the Christian life. Okay, boom, things get bad in my home. I'm like, well, that doesn't really make sense. I mean, come on, I thought, I'm trying to serve God. Why is things going bad in my home? All right, I'm living with another family, okay? All right, well, that's good. God's taking care of me. All right, I kind of, I see God. All right, then boom, next thing you know, I'm being told to go to the hospital and then my mom's dead. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm trusting in you, believing in you. Why is my mom dead? I'm, I'm, I'm a teenager for crying out loud. Like you didn't even let her live long enough for us to reconcile. Like you didn't even let us able to fix. So just, we got to be very careful not to, to conflate trusting with always a positive outcome and a situation. The disciples trust Jesus, do they not? Again, we've talked about this multiple times. What happens to all of them? They're all martyred. John is, of course, exiled to the island of Patmos after being tortured. Okay? There are Christians who suffer. Christians suffer every kind of hardship that anybody else suffers, right? Death, disease, health problems, tragedy. We suffer that. The issue is, so what they want us to do is to realize that our hope comes from what? God's faithfulness. We retain it by looking to that, not to our circumstances. And they hear that what they want us to say or to do is to understand that hope comes from trusting Christ. And I got no problem with that. Hope comes from trusting Christ. But trusting Christ, do not equate that with a positive outcome always. Because you can trust and your circumstances may not change. You know, when it's, you know when it's easy to trust Christ? When the circumstance gets better. You know when, and then I don't know how much you're really trusting. You want to know if you're really trusting? Not only when the circumstances are bad, when they don't get better. 
and it ends in a tragic way. Right? Sometimes during it, you're like, I'm going to trust, I'm going to trust, I'm going to trust, because you think that that's going to equal positive outcome. And then when the positive outcome doesn't happen, then that's when you're going to find out how much you really trust, right? Now, in this case, it all works out. It's awesome. It's wonderful. The woman gets healed. His daughter gets healed. Everyone's happy. Yay! Great, right? And then we preach it that way. And, and hey, if you're, if, you're, if you're suffering and if you're in pain and if, if you're having a difficult night, hey, don't, don't listen to anybody else. Don't listen to the naysayers. Don't listen to those who tell you that she's dead. No, you trust in Christ because she will be risen, right? And then, and then and everybody will like, amen, and everybody claps, and everybody's like, what a great sermon. And then they go home, and then guess what? It doesn't work that way. And then they start questioning Christianity. I wish it worked that way. Don't you? Am I the only one who wishes it worked that way? I wish it worked that way, that I trust Christ, and boom, everything is better. I wish that was the case. This is what they say. Jairus' crises made him feel confused, afraid, and without hope. Jesus' words to Jairus in the midst of the crisis speak to us as well. Don't be afraid, just trust me. In Jesus' mind, there was both hope and promise. The next time you feel hopeless and afraid, look at your problem from Jesus' point of view. He is the source of all hope and promise. Well, I don't know about looking at the problem from his point of view because I don't know his point and point of view. So that's ridiculous. Don't do that, okay? You'll lose your mind, okay? That's, don't do that. Just, but I do know this. We can either embrace the fear. We can either embrace the depression, the discouragement, or we can acknowledge the fear the depression, and the discouragement and say, I'm going to trust in Christ because I do know this. He is faithful, first point. I'm going to cling to that and I'm going to trust him knowing that he will return to judge the living and the dead and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. That I can trust. I cannot in any way, shape, or form, that's trusting Christ. I cannot assume or even think that trusting him is going to fix my immediate circumstances because it may not. It may not. I don't care what. Even charismatics can say whatever they want. I've yet to see charismatics show up when people are coming back from war without an arm or a leg and make an arm or a leg come back. You can trust Christ forever. Your arm or leg is not coming back. There's cemeteries all over this place. Go trust Christ and see who's, who you can raise from the dead. You're not raising anyone from the dead. So we, we got to stop conflating that concept. Advent is about we trust Christ came the first time. He died, was buried. Praise God, my sins are forgiven. His righteousness is imputed to me by faith. Now I'm going to trust that he's coming the second time. And the second time I know that he will come to make all things new. And the curse will be gone. Does that make some sense? All right. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Man, I can't believe we have six minutes. Okay, Romans chapter five. So much for getting to all of them, huh?
Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How are we justified? Faith. And because, we have pay, because we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by faith. We are not justified based on what we do, so don't look to what we do to prove that, because we're justified by faith. By whom also we have access by faith into his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, also knowing that tribulation worketh patience, patience, experience, and experience. Hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. The verse they want us to focus on is verses 1 and 2. All right? Here's what they say. Hope comes from remembering all that God has done for us. I'm going to state it this way. I'm going to say hope, the source of our hope, or hope flows from the reality of justification by faith. Hope flows from the reality that we're justified by faith, not by works. Why? Because that removes what from the equation? Me. It removes me from the equation. And that that should give me hope, right? Why should I have hope? Because I'm justified by faith. I'm justified by faith. That's hope. If you say I'm justified by faith, but if I don't do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, I prove I was never justified by faith, then I'm not justified by faith. I'm justified by works. And if I'm justified by works, no hope is flowing being justified by works because I don't know if my works are ever going to be sufficient enough to even prove me saved or to keep me saved or to do anything about my salvation. So I think hope flows from that. All right. They go on to say, Paul states clearly in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, faith, hope, and love are at the heart of the Christian life. Our relationship with God begins with faith, which helps us realize that we are delivered from our past by Christ's death. Hope grows as we learn all that God has mined for us. It gives us the promise of the future and God's love fills our life and gives us the ability to reach out to others. I'm going to say it this way. Hope flows from the reality of being justified by faith. And guess what? Being justified by faith, we have three, there's three tenses to that understanding, right? I have been justified. All my past sins have been paid for. I am justified because I'm justified by faith. All my current sins are forgiven. And I will be justified because I'm justified by faith. Past, present, and future. Therefore, I have hope. I have hope that my past has been forgiven, even though it still yells at me of all my wrong. My present is taken care of because I'm justified by faith and I don't have to worry about the future because I'm justified by faith. Does that make sense? Maybe. All right. I, I, think, I think it does. I, 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 think, I hope it does. Now, they go on to say, oh, 
I think we're going to run out. We're going to run out of time. Let's just read that one more time, and then we'll we'll just stop. There's another point. There's a whole lot more they want to say, but we'll have to stop here. All right. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Where? Do, how do we stand in this hope? Because of grace. Because we're justified by faith. And not only so, but we glory in our tribulation, knowing the tribulation worketh patience. Patience, experience, experience, hope, and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Now, I does speak of tribulation there and suffering, and we can have hope in it. I would say the main reason, you know why I can have hope even in pain and tribulation? Because I'm justified by faith. So tribulation, what's the worst thing tribulation can do to me? It can break my body. It can wreck my present. It cannot touch my eternity. Right? All right. So there is the first principle of Advent. It's about hope, 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 hope. When you light the candle on the Advent wreath, when you're thinking about this four weeks, you're thinking about a hope, an expectancy, a confidence, a faith in that something that Christ has come, right? And we find hope and confidence in what he's done for us and that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new. That hope. So think about hope. Make sure you develop a correct understanding of hope um, at least you know, at least during the first week of Advent, at least during the first week of Advent. And uh, there's a couple of other scriptures they give us. Um, one, other, uh, one other scripture, I'll just throw it out there so you can write it down. You can do this on your own. It's 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And th- this is uh, hope for a Christian comes from the, the remembering the promise of the resurrection. Those who don't have the promise of the resurrection, they grieve in a different way because when someone is dead, they are gone forever. But we have a hope that even death, the ultimate, the ultimate enemy in a way, right? The ultimate, because there's, I mean, nobody likes death. Death is ugly, horrible. There's no honorable way to die. It's horrible. But for us, we believe that's not the end that there is immediate in a sense resurrection because to be separate from the body is to be present with the Lord there will be a resurrection there will be a glorification that resurrection gives us hope it gives us hope and that that's the last one I want to do I want to spend more time on that but that gives us you can you can work on all of those all right so everybody got some of those concepts about hope this evening Important principles. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, as we end the first Sunday of Advent, we have seen some very important concepts. I hope we would meditate long and hard on all of these, but that we would really think as we move into this first week of Advent about what hope is, what it isn't, so that we can cling to a right kind of hope and develop a right kind of hope that would be beneficial and sustain us and times of despair, discouragement, and depression. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And God's people said...